1: My name is Dr. Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician, and I'm also co-chair of the JOMA, Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association Preventative Healthcare. And I'm excited and honored to be here today with with Rachel Bayar. You go by Rachel or Rachel? Rachel, Rachel. Okay, perfect. Rachel is former sex crimes and child abuse prosecutor who has worked in the field of sexual misconduct and abuse prevention for over a decade. She builds her career on creating safe spaces and facilitating change in workplaces globally. She recently served as managing director in the Sexual Misconduct Consulting and Investigations Division of TNM Protection Resources, a global security and consulting firm. Previously, she spent many years as an assistant district attorney in both the child abuse, sex crimes, and domestic violence bureaus at the Bronx District Attorney's Office. As a prosecutor, she was responsible for the prosecution and investigation of hundreds of sex crimes, child abuse, and domestic violence cases, including high profile rape cases. As a consultant, Rachel developed and delivered customized interactive workshops, lectures, and trainings across the country to diverse workplaces. She has consulted for K-12 independent schools, camps, media outlets, financial firms, law firms, global youth organizations, corporations, churches, synagogues, religious organizations, and nonprofits. She is a sought-after and widely renowned speaker for her engaging workshops on the topic of sexual misconduct, abuse prevention and detection, safe social media and electronic communication practices, boundary guide and consent. Rachel has piloted leadership training in child safety, best practices training at multiple summer camps across the U.S. and Canada, and is a consultant to camp directors. Rachel is the author of a curriculum on teaching abuse prevention in specific faith-based communities and has been featured on webinars for camps, schools, and parents on preventing sexual abuse of children. She is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Rutgers University and received her Juris Doctorate from Seton Hall University School of Law. She can be reached at Rahel, R-A-H-E-L, no C, R-A-H-E-L, at thebuyergroup.com, which is T-H-E-B-A-Y-A-R group.com. So I can't thank you enough for joining me today. That is such an incredibly impressive resume.
2: Well, it's really a pleasure to be here and it's wonderful to speak with you today. So thank you. So
1: we're going to do two things. We're going to um, hopefully empower people to parents to what they can do um, to prevent child sexual abuse. And to do that, of course, we have to talk about you know why they should be paying attention to this. Because I know I will always tell people this is scary. It's a difficult topic. I always feel like as a doctor I deal with it every day, you know, trying to prevent it um, with how I approach the physical exam. Um, but as a parent and a grandma, I'm like this is too scary um so it's normal to feel that way so we definitely want to do this in a way that's empowering but also part of empowering is empowering people to know what they can do to make their community safer without a doubt so let's just start with how common is childhood sexual abuse
2: well, I think it's important to, to first of all, kind of take a step back, take a deep breath, right? Because I'm about to share some, some relatively scary statistics, but I think for everybody that's watching or everybody that's listening, it's really important to remember that we're talking about this from the perspective of being able to empower you Because it's important as adults and as parents that we recognize that these numbers are actually really underreported statistics. You know, when it comes to, to sexual abuse in general and sexual abuse of kids, the reason why it's why it's really considered underreported or the statistics we know are underreported is because a lot of times people don't talk about what happened to them. Kids don't disclose, they don't come forward, or maybe they might come forward years later or decades later. So I think the current CDC, CDC statistics as of the date that we are recording this, and that is always subject to change, is something like one in four females and one in 13 males or people who identify as such um, are, you know, sexually abused or have um, something happen to them within the course of their childhood. And it used to be that the numbers were a little bit different. It used to be that the numbers were one in four females and one in six males or one in seven males. And we see that fluctuate throughout mm-hmm. the years. And I think that, you know, there are, there's a lot that we can learn from numbers and a lot that we can learn from statistics. But putting the numbers aside for a second, The CDC numbers are essentially saying to us, this happens and it happens a lot. And what that means is not that one in every four females that you see, right, or that's in a room with you um, is somebody that's going to be or has been sexually abused. But what it does mean is that chances are there are people that you know that there are a lot of people that you actually know who are gonna have something happen or have had something happen within their life. Um, and that's something that as adults and as parents, we all have to be able to take a deep breath and say, okay, if this is the reality, what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. So who are
1: these abusers? Because I know that like, I think we tend to think of stranger danger, you know, sure. the man in the white van.
2: Right. I mean, look, you know, there's no doubt that there are, that there is stranger danger, right? That there are people that um, commit sex crimes or that do bad things to kids. And, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't teach your kids about stranger danger, please. Like, you should teach them, don't get into a car with someone, I guess, unless it's an Uber, right? Or you should teach them, you know, don't do certain things. However, about 91 percent somewhere between 90 and 91% of all sexual abuse is going to be happening by someone, by a perpetrator that is either known to the child or known to the family. And so what that means, if you just think about it from a logical perspective, is that if it's someone that you know, or it's someone that your child knows, chances are this idea or this notion that you would be able to tell who that creepy person is, or that there's a magic serum that you can take that will automatically show you, oh, this is someone that that definitely wants to do something bad to a kid. I mean, what it really requires is for us to understand that people who sexually abuse kids, in the majority of cases, are people that fly under the radar, right? Are people that unless you are really educated in what those red flags are or what grooming techniques are or really understand them, for you, it just might seem like it's someone who's really good with kids or someone who really enjoys spending time with your kid because in order to sexually abuse a child, you have to have access to kids. And in order to have access to kids, you have to appear as though you're really good with kids. And for a lot of people, realizing that or recognizing that is overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. scary because what that means is we work to protect our kids in so many different ways. How do we work to protect our kids against someone that I may not notice as that creepy, scary person? And the truth is what it requires is that we as adults and we as parents realize that the onus is on us to protect our kids. The onus is not on our kids to fight back or the onus is not on them to say no, which doesn't mean we shouldn't teach them how to do that. But we have a responsibility to understand everything from grooming behaviors to what boundaries need to exist with adults. And we need to talk to our kids and we need to talk as families about what these issues are. And even more than that, we need to make sure that our kids' schools, that our kids' camps, that our kids' youth organizations, that our kids' religious institutions understand the significance of the seriousness as well, take it seriously, and do things to ensure that there's preventative measures in place.
1: That's, that's really good to know. Can we start first with what parents can do at home? Because of course that's you know what's greatest in our control.
2: Sure. I mean, first you gotta take a deep breath. I know I said that at the beginning, but I feel like at this point I need everybody right. to take another deep breath, right? You know, the reason why this is so scary is because we think about it from the perspective of being an adult. Mm -hmm. We know what the impact can be. We know how scary it can seem. We've read the headlines. We've seen the Law & Order episodes, right? We recognize that this is overwhelmingly terrifying. But Part of what we do as parents in homes is we we basically take really scary topics or really scary things and we figure out a way to communicate them to our kids without scaring them. Mm -hmm. You know, an example that I use all the time is when we talk about fire safety. Right. We don't tell a child in detail what will, God forbid, happen if they get caught in a fire. We don't go into the details of smoke inhalation and the impact on their lungs or what it would mean to be in a burn unit. Right. We don't go into gory, graphic detail. We explain that fire safety is really important. And so because of that, we don't play with matches. We don't play with the stove. And you know what? We also do fire drills. We do them at school. Maybe we do them at home. We do it because, If there's ever a situation where something could happen, we want to know, A, we've prevented it, or worked to prevent it, or B, we know what to do about it. You know, and I say this all the time, and I'm sure that some of your listeners, if they've heard me speak, have heard this example as well. From a very early age, when we walk with our kids, you know, I'm thinking of examples of walking with my kids to shul, right, in the morning, on Shabbat, or if I'm taking a walk on a Sunday with one of my kids, from the time that they are walking, right, or even in their stroller, I'd turn to them, and I would say, "Okay, we're at the corner. I want you to look both ways. I want you to look. Do you see a car coming? Do you hear a car coming? Let's use our senses. And if not, great, it's safe. Let's cross the street what do we not do? We do not turn to our kids and say, if you do not do this, you will get hit by a truck, your insides will be splattered on the ground, and that's it. You will be dead, right? We don't go into gory graphic detail, and yet we find a way to simplify a very scary safety issue and find a way to communicate it to our kids, and you know what it's not? It's not a sit-down conversation where we sit down in the living room and we say, listen, this is really, really serious. You need to not cross the street without looking or listening because bad things will happen. No, we almost do it in this very natural, we're already in this situation. This is how we talk about it. It's not a one-time conversation. It's a constant conversation. And abuse prevention has a very similar model that can be attached to it from a very, very young age, there are certain things that you can do that can ensure that A, your kids have the tools to communicate when something or if something bad happens, but you also set the stage to avoid grooming behaviors. So for example, I, and I see this and I hear this a lot, and as a prosecutor, I heard this all the time. We have to teach our kids the correct names for their body parts. There should never be nicknames attached to kids' body parts for so many reasons. Let me give you two of them. When a kid comes to you and says to you, well, my my lower tummy hurts, right? you need to know that it's their tummy that actually hurts. Can't tell you the number of times that I sat across from kids at a child advocacy center or at the DA's office interviewing them because there was a real allegation that they had been molested, they'd been sexually abused, and they could not tell me where it was on their body that something had happened, or they could not do it in a way that was something that we would be able to utilize in court because they did not know the names of their private parts. And from a totally different perspective, aside from the fact that we want that, we also need to ensure that as hard as it is not to associate things like being embarrassed or being private, shame should never be associated with our body parts mm-hmm. for so many reasons that have nothing to do with sexual abuse prevention. But from a sexual abuse prevention perspective, I want you to think about this. If you attached shame or embarrassment to the name of a private part for a child differently than you would for how you describe their nose or their ears or their hair or anything else, then what that means is if God forbid something bad happens to that kid, and they want to tell you or they want to disclose a part of what happened, if they're scared that you are gonna be upset or they're scared that they should be embarrassed or ashamed or think that they did something wrong, it's gonna be compounded by the fact that one of the things that as a parent you've taught them is to kind of have a little bit of shame associated with their private parts. And so the truth is, I have had many calls from teachers over the years where my kids have walked into school and talked about the, you know, their private parts, right? Or that they've mentioned, you know, the anatomically correct name for them and teachers who laugh it off or teachers who have said to them over the years, you can't use that word. And I I remember so vividly getting a call from one of my child's teachers saying, you know, your child is using this word. And my response was good. That's not something that should be punished. If something hurts or if something doesn't feel right, we've got to use the correct names. And I think that the other big piece that, I know that people who have heard me speak will hear me speak about this all the time, because if there's one thing that you take from this, take this, which is no healthy grown-up needs a child to keep a secret for them, period. Secrets are what people who groom children use to silence them. And to manipulate them and so because of that if you could think of one family rule that you could create one family value when it comes to child safety it would be no secrets no one is allowed to use the word secrets we don't keep secrets and we teach our kids the difference between a secret and a surprise a surprise has an ending and a secret does not. And because no healthy grown-up needs us to keep a secret for them, we don't keep secrets. And I can tell you the amount of times that I've also gotten phone calls from teachers where, you know, I've had a child tell a teacher, no, we're not allowed to keep secrets. You can't use that word. And my mom puts people like you in jail, right? I've gotten calls all the time from teachers about that. And, you know, and, and part of it is, is being able to educate teachers or educate schools on why that's such a big deal. But it also means that when grandma comes by and says, oh, I have a secret to tell you, right? Or when the aunt or uncle comes by and says, oh, I have a secret toy for you. We have to model for our kids, hey, we don't keep secrets. and. And I've had to do that in my family, you know, from the time that my first child was born, you know, with, with cousins, with aunts, with uncles, with grandparents, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, one of the things you can do is actually educate your family about it. This is the reason why. This is why we don't use that word. This is why we don't keep it. And I think that those are some very, like two very simple things that every family can do that's not overwhelmingly scary. I can give you a whole list of other things, but I think that When you think about empowering our kids and empowering us to empower our kids, those are some really, really good, um, those are some really good rules to follow. That
1: is so, so important. One more thing though, would be teaching them about consent and about these private parts of their body, not just the names of them. And I know as a pediatrician, I take the time, just a few minutes when I do the exam, I first say, these are private parts of your body. I am allowed to check them because I'm a doctor and because either you say so or mommy says so, depending on the age. I found that I can't do it for kids too young because then they just say no.
2: (laughs) So actually I would even add to that something Mm -hmm. that I added in from a very early age, whenever I would take my kids for their physical, which is Mm I, I as the parent would actually say it in front of the doctor. And the Mm -hmm. other thing that I would add to it was by the way, If somebody like a doctor came to you and said, let me check your private parts, but your mom or your dad were not in the room, right? Or your parent was not in the room, Mm -hmm. then that's not actually something that could ever happen, right doctor? And inevitably the doctor is always like, absolutely. The reason why I can safely do this is because your mom is here or your dad is here we're talking about it. You understand why it is we have to do it. I mean, I've had pediatricians over the years that have been such great partners in Mm. being able to communicate and to explain this to my child. Because the other thing that you don't want is you don't want a child thinking, well, if someone turns to them and says, I'm a doctor, I can just you know, check you wherever I want, right? You want to avoid things like that. So yes, Teaching kids about consent is incredibly important, but also communicating with others is really important about that as well.
1: Right. What I do is I say, "And your mom and dad are right here." That's always part of it.
2: You know, we're talking about
1: younger children.
2: Yep, absolutely.
1: So that's really important. I, I, the problem is that you know parents often are very anxious about this, and I don't want to promote anxiety. So then the next thing I say is, and it's really important to have these conversations with your kids.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I can't take the anxiety away from parents, but right. what I think is really, really important is to remember that our job is not to make this scary for our kids. Our job is not to envision the worst, right? We don't mm-hmm. need to envision what it would be like if X, Y, and Z, but our job is to prepare not only our kids, but really ourselves, right? We can't, we don't let our kids jump into a pool without teaching them how to swim. So how do you let your kids go out without giving them a foundation of of really important things? And I, I just wanna clarify that that does not mean that the onus is on a child to report to you if something bad happens to them. You know, we give our kids tools, we empower them, we hope that they will be able to use it. But I don't want to minimize the fact that the onus is not on a child to protect themselves. The onus is on us, which means, as you just said, that communication piece is so incredibly important. Talking to our kids, if something made them feel unsafe, if something made them feel uncomfortable, knowing that not every time there's an issue of sexual abuse or an act, it's going to automatically make them feel, and I use air quotes with this, uncomfortable, right? So we have to use a variety of different words. And we have to be able to explain to kids and set our own boundaries and our own parameters, you know, rules around everything from sleepovers to going away to sleepaway camp to, you know, who we allow in our house and what we allow them to do and understanding that boundaries have to be set in camps and schools, et cetera. So I think that the first piece, you know, I started with take a breath. I think we took a breath in the middle is as parents being able to really take a step back and say, okay, this is something really important we have to do. The discomfort that you as a parent feel in thinking about navigating these discussions, that is your discomfort. Your child is only going to feel discomfort and fear if that's what you share with them. So instead, really take a deep breath and think about the general things that you can talk to your kids about, right? The body parts, the secrets, consent, the fact that, you know, and there are a lot of other things that we can get into, but I think that that that's the key, which is we have to be calm.
1: That is so such important, such great advice. Do you want to talk about red flags? Because you mentioned them before. Sure. Red flags with regard to- a little to- concerned that people don't get like, you know, oversee things because that's the problem when you, you, know, you build up anxiety about this is everything becomes a red flag.
2: Yeah. And you know what, I would really recommend that people take a look at, you know, do a little bit of research mm-hmm. on their own. There's a lot of really good information out there. The CDC has a lot of information out there. You know, there are, there are a lot of different types of red flags. And I think that one of the things Um, that's really important to remember is that a lot of the red flags in kids um, that might be associated with sexual abuse are also red flags of trauma. Mm -hmm. And there could be trauma for a lot of different reasons. Um, And so what I would highly recommend is that you as a parent take some time, look at that CDC website, take a look at some other websites in terms of red flags, and don't make this immediate assumption that something terrible has happened to your kid. It's very natural for kids to explore their bodies. It's very natural for kids to say lots of things just because a friend turned to them and asked them to keep a secret doesn't mean that friend is, you know, a predator of some sort. Um, But I think that that understanding that there are different types of red flags. There are red flags with regard to our kids. There are also red flags with regard to people who are not safe to be around kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that it's important to educate yourself on kind of both of those aspects of what red flags are.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. So a point that you made
1: is that it's not our children's responsibility to protect themselves, Um, but we send them out every day to so many places. So I'm going to give you the perfect segue to talk about what you do now. Go for it.
2: Sure. Sure. Um, No, I mean, I'm a consultant. Um, I'm the founder and the CEO of the Bayer Group. Um, And what I've been doing, what I've been doing for so, so many years, and I'm now doing, you know, As a consultant in this space is working with a variety of different places on essentially how to be proactive in keeping your place safe so whether you're a school or whether you're a camp whether you're a faith-based institution whether you are a corporate workplace and you're looking to enhance your policies and procedures and training on abuse prevention on harassment whatever it might be um, there are um, many, many places across the country that I work with. Pre-COVID, I did a lot of traveling, and post-COVID, it's a lot of webinars Zoom. and Zoom. Um, but really to be able to work with, let's say, you know, a school is a great example, to be able to work with a school not just on how their faculty and staff are trained in terms of boundaries, in terms of red flags, and grooming, and abuse prevention and mandated reporting, but also on how our kids are being trained, right? And what conversations are had with our kids. You know, kids from a very early age can can and should be taught about abuse prevention, and it does not have to be scary. And part of the advantage of bringing someone in from the outside is that you have someone that may not know these kids, and it's not scary because this is what they talk about all the time. There are actually a lot of us out there that do a lot of good work. but i will say that one of the things that i've seen a lot of schools that i work with do just over the course of the past few years is really build up their student trainings trainings on abuse prevention trainings on consent trainings on being safe online especially in this covid world how mm-hmm. we think about crimes that may happen that we as you know as as a generation of digital immigrants as opposed to our kids who are very much digital natives you know navigate safety online. Um, And I think that a big piece of that, especially in a school environment, is also providing education to parents, for parents to understand what their kids are getting within their school, what is being shared with them, how it's being shared, and helping parents to navigate conversations with their kids, because Though I can say take a deep breath, the bottom line is this stuff is really hard to talk about because as adults, we're scared to talk about it. So if there's a way for your school community, your camp community to be able to empower families and your community as a whole to talk about this, communicating about this, talking about this, being transparent about it is one of the biggest proactive things that can be done to ensure that kids are actually safe. So. You
1: mentioned online safety, and I realized we did not talk about that. And I think that there's two different approaches to this. One is the filter approach or the just not using internet at all approach. Do you think that that is enough?
2: No, I actually don't. I'm a firm believer that when you when you um, remove something completely kids will find a way to be able to do it right I think that um, that you know the, the concept of they can never be online or they you know they can never do this is great until they actually find a way to be online or they have a friend that's online and then what you've done is you haven't armed them with information to actually keep them safe you know I think filters are really good you know depending on your family depending on what devices your kids have you know depending on what devices they have access to, but filters are not actually the way that you protect your kids. It is one avenue of protecting it, but it doesn't take the place of conversations and it doesn't take the place of education. Because the bottom line is they'll have access to another device from their friend, Mm -hmm. or they'll have access to something that you don't even know that they have access to, or they'll find a way around a filter, right? Or they'll navigate through it because they understand how to navigate their devices actually better than you do. Because that's the nature of having grown up in an electronic age versus people who are like my generation and older who you know didn't have a computer or didn't have a phone right or didn't have you know the ability to access things didn't grow up in a world of social media And so because of that, I think it's really important, especially when you think that what your kids are doing online is just automatically safe to understand that kids find ways. And and it's not devious. It's just the nature of kids. They're curious and they explore. So let's educate them and let's empower them and let's give them tools to stay safe. You know, and a really good example is you may think that a game is totally, you know, safe, right? You might think that it's totally fine. There's nothing to it but have you really navigated through the settings? Are they playing with strangers? right? You can say to your child, don't play with a stranger, but how about the conversation of what happens if a stranger messages you? What happens if another 13-year-old messages you? right? Have you had that conversation with your child that someone else could be pretending to be a 13-year-old? You know, Have you had the uncomfortable conversation of how do you as a child text with your friends? I can tell you that I've worked with many, many, many schools, and there has been a huge influx, especially over the past years, to have um, training done, especially in the middle school grades, on safe electronic communication and social media, inevitably, when I go into a school. Um, and, and, if, and let me give you kind of this, this smaller, this more narrow view, when I go into, let's say, uh, an Orthodox Jewish school, and I ask the question of, how many of you know someone right? Not that you've done it yourself, but how many of you know someone that has been asked to send a naked or semi-naked picture to someone else? How many of you know someone that has sent a naked or semi-naked picture, right? How many of you know someone that has asked to have a picture sent to them? Inevitably, inevitably, I think starting from fifth grade, which is the youngest group that I have done something like this with, inevitably, at least 60 to 90% of the kids in that room will raise their hand really depending on the age. And I always ensure that the teachers and the administration are actually in the room when I ask this question, because I look around the room and I see these adults who educate these kids, right? Lima de teachers, secular teachers, etc And they're looking at the hands being raised, and I know that there are a lot of kids that are not raising their hands, but the majority of kids that are raising their hands, they're floored by the numbers. I think we have to be able to realize that kids are communicating in a different way than we communicated as kids, and you can say to your child, you are not allowed to do this, but I think the conversation has to extend beyond that, and it has to be about I need to talk to you about what happens when you're asked this. I need to talk to you about what happens when a friend is asked this. I need to talk to you about, you know, what the outcome could be, why this is such a big issue. And we have I have I've have kids that span a, a variety of different ages and and we all joke because we have certain we have our family rules and values that we have on a big chalkboard in our kitchen. And we have a lot of really funny ones and we have a lot of really serious ones and we kind of intersperse them. Um, and it's kind of like a, a family mission statement in bullet point form. And we have, you know, the no secrets up there. We also have, you know, flush the toilet, right? Make sure you wash your hands, right? The, the, the very like, they're funny, but they are really serious. Um, but we also have, you know, when you send something, you need to know it's there for forever and so what that means is very simply and i i my kids you know from a young age totally rolled their eyes at me you know and totally were like "Ah, i would never do this but we don't send pictures of ourselves unless we are fully dressed and we do not send pictures from a bathroom we don't send pictures from a bedroom we don't take selfies in a bathroom or a bedroom. And the truth is that those things, those kind of simple rules, if you're not comfortable saying no naked pictures, you can't take a naked picture of yourself, you're not comfortable using that language, then then you still have to be able to find a way to talk to your kids without using words that are uncomfortable for Mm -hmm. you in a way that shows why this is a value and what the value is. And the truth is we do this with our kids all the time. We do this with our kids about other values, you know, other things that we do as family units or as communal units. This, instead of saying this doesn't happen here, whether it comes to abuse, whether it comes to online safety, we need to, we need to shift the framework that we're talking about. It does happen. It happens in every community. It happens in every school. It happens with every religion. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic level is. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter where you are from geographically. It doesn't matter how sheltered you are or how open you are or how conservative you are or how liberal you are. Abuse is something that permeates every single wall that we put up. So everybody, no matter where you live, no matter where you come from, no matter what school your kids go to, we all have a responsibility to ensure that we are keeping our kids safe.
1: That says it all. I mean, that really summarizes it. And I thank you so much for doing this with me. I just want to make the point again that it's we're all in this together and that it's not something one parent can do on their own. I felt very, you know, scared as a parent if I felt I was doing it on my own but we this is why what you're doing is so incredibly valuable I'm going to repeat oh, again how, how to find you um <laughs> because you can't do this on your own it's like you mentioned before when you mentioned the teacher that said oh we don't use those words it undermines what you do as a parent if the school right. and the camp and the you know synagogue and all these other places undermine what you do we all have to be on the same page on this and also you're, you're talking about how common these um inappropriate messages are that kids send, um, you can't do it on your own again. The schools have to address it. They have to be aware of what's happening and address it. So what you do is incredibly valuable. And I wish you so much success in what you do. But I just want to give your um, email, r-a-h-e-l at the buyer t-h-e-b-a-y-a-r group.com and do you have other platforms you want to
2: i do i'm on linkedin under um rachel r-a-h-e-l bayer b-a-y-a-r i'm on instagram rachel bayer spelled the exact same way mm-hmm. um and people can find me on social media as well thank you so much i really appreciate That's you doing this thank you so much and thank you for having me today this was wonderful
1: it was and i hope people listen and and learn from it and that we prevent Uh, so many things happening, keeping our children safe. It's so, so important.
2: Here's hoping.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's jowm org or email us at health at joma.org.